Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And today we're going to be talking about pots. Yeah. Not not Big. all, literally. Sometimes it's the very crazed advent of the instant pot. And then in the second instance and then the third in- instant, we're going to be talking about the things you cook in the pot. So um, anyhow, it's a, it's the common thread we could scrape out of this program, <laughs> and including you'll find out the importance of scraping the rice out of the bottom of the pot. You, you know you're onto something at on the menu radio when a book arrives and the Bible is in the title. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, so, so Bruce. Weinstein and Mark Scarborough put their heads together once again to produce yet another Bible. They have written, by the way, 30 books in 19 years. (laughs) How is that possible? I don't know. know Several of them are slotted for the New Testament. (laughs) The the authors of the New Testament are looking for something more interesting. (laughs) Our books should only sell as well as the New Testament. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there we go. But, but seriously, the title of the book is The Instant Pot Bible. And uh, Bruce, we're delighted to have you here joining us today. And it's and authorized by uh, Instant Pot, by the way. It is authorized by Instant Pot. They, were, they gave their blessing. They helped promote it. They are very much behind this book, uh, which means we did something right in using the appliances that over, let's put it this way, a million Seven, 1.7 million people are in the Instant Pot group on Facebook. Oh, my God. And that group is so active, it's incredible. Well, well I mean, I'm sure that they probably sold a, a gazillion of them for the holidays. Oh, they were supposedly the number one selling product on Amazon in November it. and December. Was that the book number or the one Instant Pot? The Instant Pot itself. Instant Pot itself. So, of okay. course, you need a book to tell you how to use it. Um, <laughs> and that's what we're going to be talking to Bruce about because I, I said earlier that to be able to use an Instant Pot, which I have to say I have never used. I do not own one. And Mr. Wang won't give me one. <laughs> I'm not gonna, <laughs> um, but I'd have to start to learn to cook all over again, but you corrected me and said... It's just learning a new technique, and if you've ever used any kind of a pressure cooker in your life, then this is just learning to use a new kind of pressure cooker, because mostly, yes, the Instant Pot is um, a multi-cooker, so it does pressure cooking and slow cooking and rice cooking and yogurt making and all of that, but I would dare say that 90% 90% of people who use it are using it as a pressure cooker exclusively. So if you have any experience with a pressure cooker, it will be very easy to understand how to use the Instant Pot, mostly understanding that what sets it apart from other pressure cookers, and especially electric pressure cookers, is that it cooks at a higher temperature and a higher pressure. So therefore, things cook faster. Therefore, timings are different in recipes for the Instant Pot than recipes for other pressure cookers, which is why you needed to have your own book to use right. with the Instant Pot. Now, you you have, uh, yes, your subtitle, um, uh, which gives us, you can expand on this, more, right. than, more than 350 recipes and strategies 
the only book you need for every model of Instant Pot. Because that's yeah, a whole we, uh, the first question I had is, <laughs> <laughs> what about all these different models? Well, here's, let me first say that a lot of people confuse Instant Pot with just electric pressure cooker, the way people use Kleenex to mean all tissues right. and Jello to mean all gelatin desserts. Instant Pot is a brand. The item is an electric pressure cooker. So within the brand of Instant Pot, they make many models. They make a model called Lux, L-U-X, which is one of their older models, and it's not terribly fancy. It does the job, but it doesn't do much. Then there's the Duo, which is a little newer, and it's kind of like the workhorse. Then they have um, the Ultra, which is a little fancier and has these LED screens. And their newest one called Max has a touch LED screen, and it offers a feature that no one else yeah, does, which sous-vide. is it'll actually, excuse me? Sous-vide. Yeah, it could do sous-vide with it, but most important, it will cook at 15 PSI, which is the same level of pressure as a stovetop pressure cooker. So it could cook faster than any other. And why we had to say in the book that we give you direction for every model in every recipe is because along the way of changing his models, Mr. Wang changed buttons, names of functions, and people got confused. So yeah, why did he do say, that? that yeah, well, I don't know. But so we couldn't just thing. say hit pressure cook. We had to say hit pressure cook or manual or <laughs> which, yeah. because depending on the model, you'll have a different button that you need to press. Um, and some models... After you press pressure cooker and set your time, you hit start. Some of his models, you don't hit start. The machine will just start automatically. So we are the only book that tells you in every recipe what to do no matter which model you have. And you also say, though, hang on to your owner's manual because you can't cover all that. No, we are, again, we are a cookbook and we are not an owner's manual. So we give the basics, but you must hold on to it. The nice thing about... Um, Instant Brands, which is the company that makes Instant Pot, on their website, and this is like most companies' website, uh, KitchenAid does it, Cuisinart does it, you could download the manuals for almost every appliance made on the company's website. So if you do lose it, they're all available online. Right. Now, you cover a lot of territory in your introductions. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well... You know, the, there's, we wanted people to understand, you know, what certain uh, vocabulary is in using the Instant Pot. Now, it is true, a lot of that vocabulary is the same vocabulary you would use for any electric pressure cooker. Like, you need to know the difference between a natural release and a quick release um, and all of that stuff. So we do give a lot of information on how to use the generic machine called an electric pressure cooker. But again, for real details on each one, you need to go to your owner's manual. So we basically call the introduction an owner's manual to this book. So it teaches you what you even need to understand the book and how to follow the recipes to know how to make them work for your machine. Right. And... Then we enter into some of the construction of the book itself. 
um, you you give um, head notes for of course, your, yes. every section. And uh, how many sections do you have? Just oh my goodness, yeah, I how know. many chapters? How did you decide on that? Twelve chapters, um, desserts, um, sides, rice and grains. We decided to break out our braises into longer braises. That is recipes that are. 20 minutes or more under pressure and shorter braises where it's fewer than 20 minutes and under pressure. And within those, there will be beef and chicken and pork, so it's not divided out by a chicken chapter or a beef chapter. Instead, we thought, you know, we were going to go a little differently, and so we had the longer and shorter, but then we have a chapter on all things pulled. Yeah, I thought that was funny, yeah. You know, all-American pulled pork, and there'll be pulled beef and even pulled chicken recipes, all things curried. And that, of course, well, you'll find your chicken tikka masala and your that pork curry that every Japanese mom makes in every one of those Japanese movies I watch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've got a whole chapter on chilies and sloppy joes and ragus and everything made with ground meat, or as Mark um, likes to say when he grew up, loose meat. <laughs> Everything made with a loose meat. <laughs> yeah, you, I just wonder how you settled on. Certain, I mean, I looked here. You have turmeric broth. I mean, I mean what, what, what kind of? How many people are going to make turmeric broth? I well, no, you'd actually be surprised um, yeah. how many people make turmeric. I, broth. Ca- I keep turmeric root fresh in my refrigerator. Yeah, turmeric broth is just—it's become a thing. It, it has just become one of those. Um, I want to say cult because it's become a very, very popular herbal, both ingredient and remedy. Yeah, it's an anti-inflammatory. We use turmeric in almost uh, you know a dietary supplement, medicinal way. And I wanted to create a broth that could be drunk on its own for that purpose, or used in other recipes. Um, and when you are making infusions, when you're making broths, or you're just trying to. In- to get all the flavor out of an herb or a root or a fruit. I will say that an electric pressure cooker and the Instant Pot can do that almost better than any other kind of pan. You certainly will will get more out of it than if you just boiled it in a pot on the stove. Right. Of course, it still makes your teeth orange. I've never understood that. <laughs> yeah. Um, explain this beyond concept, your little box beyonds. The beyond. So in every recipe, there's a little sidebar box that says beyond. And in beyond, we give information for what to do to the recipe if you have a three-quart or an eight-quart cooker, because most people have six-quart cookers. So we tested every recipe in a six-quart. We say in the recipes whether it works in a six or an eight, but if you must make alterations for it to be in an eight, it's in the beyond. If you have to do alterations to make it fit in your three-quart, it's in the beyond. It's also where we sort of give uh, test kitchen notes, as it were, um, things that we discovered making the dish that, you know, if it's a pasta sauce, for instance, I'm looking at the Italian pot roast ragu, here's where we tell you that this ragu takes well to pasta shapes like rigatoni or fusilli, that it's big, hearty pastas or pastas that are spiral that'll hold on to it as opposed to just serving for spaghetti. Um, we give serving suggestions. For instance, here, we suggest if you want to go in 
into a direction that's low carb. Don't even serve this ragu over pasta. Serve it over a large spoonful of fresh ricotta cheese. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is the beyond are where we go into how to alter the recipes either to fit the the equipment you have or to fit your taste. Right. Now, what are these little charts you have all the way through it? Uh, the recipes have charts in them because there are many steps involved in setting up the pressure cooker to go. You have to set it for what level. First of all, you have to set it for the function you're looking for. Are you looking to saute first, or are you looking to put your food in an instantly hit pressure cook? So you have to set the machine for either saute or for pressure cook. Then you have to set whether you want normal pressure or whether you want to go for low pressure or high pressure. Um, and then you have to set the time, and then sometimes you have to hit start or not. So we decided the easiest way to get all that information out was to put that in a chart so that so you follow along with the recipe where you could, you know, I'm looking now at my creamy beef short rib ragu. And in step three, you pour the wine into the cooker. You've already browned your meat. You've scraped it all up. You've added tomatoes and garlic. You lock your lid in place, and now you have the chart. And so you can either press the button for pressure cook or for meat stew because, once again, Mr. Wang had changed what the buttons say. So your cooker <laughs> may say meat stew so or bizarre. Say pressure cook. So we tell you what to do. The next, I, the next column in the chart says set it for high pressure or max pressure because you may have the new machine with max. Then, so, so the chart takes you through all the options that you're going to have depending upon which model of machine you have. And we think it makes it very clear to, uh, so that nobody is left out and everybody can make the recipe either whether they have an old machine or a new machine. Yes, and then there's also the information on how to release the steam. That is the most important information that anybody can have. You must read that part of the introduction. You must read your owner's manual to know how to do that. When you cook under pressure in an Instant Pot or in any pressure cooker, pressure builds up, the heat builds up, and the lid is locked into place. It cannot be opened. So the only way you're going to be able to open it and get at your food is for the pressure to go away and the steam to be released. And there's two ways that can happen. One is a natural release. You do nothing. You turn the heat off. You turn the machine off. You unplug the machine. And over time, and this could be 10 minutes or even up to two an hours, hour, yeah. the machine will cool down enough that the lid will allow you to open it. The other way is a quick release. And that's where you either have to flip a valve or push a button, depending upon your model, and the steam will shoot up out of the valve on the top, and the steam will be released that way, and then you will be able to open it. So you must be aware of whether a recipe calls for one or the other, because they're not interchangeable. Because during a natural release time, the food is still cooking. It's still yeah, boiling away as the temperature's coming down. And we've built that cooking time in when we've called for a natural release. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was really interesting, that, that, that we're still cooking. And so, yes, um, it is, because just because you've turned it off doesn't mean you, the reason you can't open that lid is because it's still very, very, very hot and under pressure in there. And it will still keep cooking pretty much until the moment that the lid unlocks and lets you open it. 
and it might even still be at a slight simmer at that point. Um, but, oh, it's continuing to cook. Yeah, I, I wish I had followed your recipe for spoon lamb. <laughs> <laughs> well, spoon lamb is quite a delicious thing. Yeah, I hear you had some issues with a leg of lamb. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing about um, <laughs> the instant pot is that there uh, well, that's the nice thing, but also the head limitations. You're never going to fit an entire leg of lamb in it. Right. It just, you know, it's, imagine trying to fit, a, you know, a six or eight pound leg of lamb into a crock pot. It's just not going to happen. I know. You know, it just doesn't fit in there. Um, you know, about, what was it, five or six years ago, Mark and I wrote a book on goat, and it was the first ever all goat. Oh, I remember that book. We interviewed you about that. The, yeah, and the goat farm I went to to get my meat, it gave me a, a whole baby goat at one point that was dispatched. I mean, it, was, it was for cooking. It was not a pet. It was for cooking. And, you know, this is a 19-pound goat. This is not going in an Instant Pot. No. Um, and luckily, my grill was big enough that I was able to put it on a skewer and rotisserie it for about six hours, oh, uh, basting it with garlic and olive oils and smashed up anchovies, and it was amazing. Um, but very different kind of food than than it is about, but spoon lamb, yum. And it's funny because everybody says different reasons why why roasts are called spoon roasts, and some people say, well, because you can eat it with a spoon, it's so soft, and others because they're rounded and tied so they look like the bowl of a spoon. <laughs> um, I, I like to cook them until they are falling apart tender. So mm-hmm. You can eat it with a spoon, but also I do think they resemble a spoon, so. Okay, well, we, well, we, we have two-thirds of a leg of lamb, so... We're going to have the opportunity to experiment with spoon lamb. Okay, yeah. excellent. You know what? I really want, but we, but we don't. But we don't have an instant pot. No, we don't have an instant <laughs> pot. But you refer to this as a revolution. Now, here you are, somebody who is certainly an experienced cook, but you're also um, an expert on pressure cooking. Um, yes. What would you list as the advantages of? An instant pot. You you obviously find this a revolutionary idea. It is. Um, there there are two things that I've always been uh, kind of impressed with with instant pot. Why it's revolutionary in the pressure cooker world. And the first is that the original models of the instant pot, the Lux, the Duo, and now the Ultra, all cook at 12.1 PSI, pounds per square inch of pressure. Um, Standard electric pressure cookers do anywhere between 9 and 10. And that 2 pounds of pressure is a huge difference, and it means that the temperature will actually go up inside the pot as well as the pressure, so food will cook faster. So whereas, let's say, a brisket might take me in a regular electric pressure cooker an hour and 20 minutes, in the Instant Pot, it may only take me an hour and five minutes. And that's, that's actually a big difference. And then... But don't you have to add on... Is, don't you have to add on to that the time it takes you to release the pressure? Well, you do, but that that's... I, I'm talking about the time under pressure. But yes, and that... And I'm glad you said that, Em, because a lot of people complain that if we say, you know, that it takes two hours to make this recipe, that they're like, well, it does not take into account the time it takes to come to pressure or the time to release pressure. So what we've, what we've started doing now is we just refer to how much time under pressure. 
and that's that's and so as impressed as I was by the twelve point one psi that Instant Pots did, Mr. Wang went one step better, and in his newest model, the Instant Pot Max, there's a setting for max pressure. You can do the high pressure twelve point one, but you could do the max pressure, which is fifteen psi, which happens to be the same amount of pressure that the old-fashioned stovetop pressure cookers cook at. So, really? hmm. yeah, so the biggest drawback of electric pressure cookers all the time was they didn't cook as fast as stovetop cookers. Now they do. So if I'm making risotto in a pressure cooker, and it's great because you don't have to stir it, it comes out creamy, it's amazing, on a stovetop, it was seven minutes, no stirring, amazing risotto. In an electric pressure cooker... It always took 10 or 11 minutes. I know that sounds like, well, God, it's only four minutes, but when you're making dinner after the theater and it's 10.30 and you're hungry, that makes a difference for me. And now I can make that same risotto in the max in seven minutes. And the idea of risotto in seven minutes with no spring, to me, is revolutionary. Well, I mean, using a pressure cooker... Uh, to make risotto was what finished me. I mean, I gave up doing it, and I gave away my pressure cooker. because (laughs) (laughs) You would rather stir it for 45 minutes. Well, no, you still had to stir. I mean, the the pressure cooker I had, I can't remember which one. And so I I didn't think it really saved me that much time. But Uh, it was also too liquid. And I mean, there was, anyhow. So, I don't know, you, you... imparted some enthusiasm back into my head about this instant pot. So, so what, uh, tell Mr. Wang to send me one. <laughs> okay, Bruce, it's, it's always wonderful. Say hello to Mark for us, too. Oh, I will. Thank you for speaking with me again. I love speaking with you. Oh, I do, too. I mean, I always look forward to your next book. <laughs> and, and, and it won't be long. We heard, we heard rumors that you have something in the pipeline already. Oh, my goodness. We have another Instant Pot book that we're working on, which, believe it or not, will be on sale by Mother's Day of this year. Good grief. I don't know what you do. That's a hell of a good target. (laughs) And let me even add to that, that as soon as we turn this book in on February 15th, we've got to jump into the next book, which is going to be, guess what this is, an air fryer book. Oh, God. I've been wondering about Over this air fryer. Over 300 air fryer recipes, and that book will be on sale next fall. Do you like so it, the I air fryer? hoping we get to speak again. Do you like the air fryer? I love the air fryer because with very little oil, yeah. you can make amazing French fries, crispy, boneless, skinless chicken breasts. I could char Brussels sprouts. I could throw Brussels sprouts in the air fryer, and they get tender on the inside, charred on the outside, and then I toss them with some anchovies and olive oil and a little balsamic. Oh, that sounds good. Listen, Mark. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest, now Zoravian, has been getting rave reviews for her book called Bottom of the Pot. Um, I love anything Persian. I think the, the combination of, of spices and 
I, I just love Persian food. So, but anyhow, so I love this one. But listen to the interview to find out what, why it's called Bottom of the Pot. There's been a great deal of buzz about this new book called Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories, and a lot of buzz also about its author, uh, who I say uh, has a, a brilliant talent for, for writing, uh, Nas Daravian, um, who was born in Persia, which is Iran, uh, was also went and lived in Italy during the uh, Iranian Re Revolution and then moved to Canada and now you live in Los Angeles. Um, let's start first of all with the title. What do you mean by Bottom of the Pot as a title for a cookbook? Well, Bottom of the Pot is um, uh, exactly what it is. It's tadig, which is the crispy rice at the bottom of the pot. Tah means bottom, and dig means pot. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's literally the bottom of the pot. It's a much-coveted, um, crispy, buttery, saffron-infused um, rice. It can be other things as well. It can be bread. It can be potatoes. Um, I have a fish tadig in oh, my book. Oh, that is gorgeous, is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's a pretty spectacular dish. Um, but uh, typically, it's rice or bread or potatoes. And it is, um, it's scrumptious. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's a tradition that, that's cross-cultural. I mean, this, the paella, the, the little crispy bits are, are coveted as well. And also in China, uh, the, the crispy rice bits are the, the parts that they give for snacks to the children after school snacks. So it's, it's something that's not just um, limited, is it? It's broadly no, it's it's not, and um, Colombians have have a similar dish, you know, and and I know Koreans do. Um, I, I you know Iranians, Persians, though we're um, we take our rice making very seriously. <laughs> um, I think it's we've elevated it to an art form, so it's our technique is uh, a little bit different um, in that it's also how you prepare the rice. Um, Itself, so you want every grain to be long, and um, you want every single grain of rice to shine on its own. So it's not clumpy rice per se. Yeah, it uh, looks very different, actually, as a finished dish. Yes, yes. And you know, I, it's, now it's interesting because I picture Iran as being in, the, in the, the the Gulf of Arabia or whatever you call it, and and it's kind of dry. And, and rice, the way I've always understood it, needed a lot of water. So, yeah. so how, how do you figure that out? Is it a different oh, no, kind of rice? No, not at all. Um, Iran is, um, it has many different regions. Okay. And, um, of course, yes, to the south, it's, it's more dry. But, no, the northern part of Iran, which is in the, it borders um, the Caspian Sea in the Caucasus, it's extremely um it's, it's extremely lush with rice paddies. Um, Gilan province in the north is where, you know, they have these lush and um, rice paddies where the rice grows. So not at all. Um, uh, it's, it's very, uh, geographically, Iran is, has many different um, uh, areas to it. So it's not 
it's not all one okay. dry land. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you for that. Thank you for that clarification. With my with my masters in geography, I should have known better. Huh? <laughs> no, it's quite all right. What else, you know, you don't really read much about um, different regions of uh, Iran in terms of culinary, yes, the landscape. But um, you say there are. Your father was born in the north, and your mm-hmm. mother was, and you were born in Tehran, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, my father is from Gilan Province, um, the north, where. You know, the area that borders the Caspian Sea. My mother is from Azerbaijan province. Uh, if you think of the map of Iran, it, it would be considered the head of the cat, um, which also borders um, the Republic of Azerbaijan um, in the Caucasus. And I was born in Tehran. Right. Now, you lived in all these different places. I mean, how how authentic are these recipes? Are they really family recipes that have been passed down to you with tradition? Well, some are, and um, some have traveled, you know, the recipes have traveled with me, and um, I've spent most of my life living abroad, so naturally they're going to pick up on what I call my accent. Um, I haven't been back to Iran, so... I've spent most of my life in the West and now in Los Angeles. So the recipes are a reflection both of my heritage but also of the way I cook now in my kitchen in L.A. Um, I think authenticity, it all depends on whose home you're in, <laughs> you know. Right. Well, this um, is true even, of every cuisine, actually, isn't it? Yeah. So even in Iran, you'll find the same dishes will vary slightly from region to region, even home to home, neighborhood to neighborhood. So um, some of the recipes in the book are uh, are family recipes that have been passed down to me, and some I've put my own spin on them, or it's how they have evolved in my kitchen in L.A. Now, to you, this, well, Peter said this actually to me. This is not just a cookbook. Um, to you, food is culture, Right. Absolutely, yes. Well, uh, first and foremost, food is love <laughs> to me. Right. Um, it's the way that we express our love and um, generosity and hospitality. Iranians, like, um, I would say most all Middle Easterners are known for their generous hospitality, and food is the first and foremost way that we can show our love and generosity. So, and with that comes culture. Um, just like uh, Persian literature and music, um, I think that food is representative of this great culture as well. Yeah, well your mother was a poet, you said, hmm? She still is, yes. She's, uh, yes. She, she didn't write that poem, did she, about Kublai Khan? Doing a pleasure dome or something like that? No. <laughs> now, you have um, pretty authentic ingredients um, but you sort of suggest how to, to go about getting them. And today, almost anything could be found online. Um, I, I think the, the most disconcerting thing for the average cookbook reader is going to be your measurements. <laughs> and I know this from trying to get my grandmother's recipes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Americans are tuned into this two teaspoons, a tablespoon, a cup, and you don't do that, do you? 
Well, I do in the book. I try to be as exact as I can. But yes, I grew up um, in a culture where recipes are, are passed down orally. So nothing was written down. Um, nothing was measured or is measured. You know, you cook by instinct. You cook by watching. You cook by smelling, tasting, listening, you know, to how those onions are sizzling. Um, and I try to encourage everyone to, you know, I say in the book to cook the recipes as written, exactly as written for the first time. And I do give, to the best of my ability, um, cup and tablespoon measurements. But then the second or third time, I encourage people to make it their own. And uh, none of these recipes, unless if it's a baked good, um, unless if you're making bread, right. you're not, it, it's not going to go <laughs> south, you know, just if, if you add another handful of parsley right. or a little more mint. So um, I, I, I love your mother's everyone. directions, especially the one, make it delicious. I love that. Exactly. That's something that has stayed with me <laughs> all these years. Is you can follow a recipe, any recipe, exactly as written, but there comes a point where you have to step in and make it delicious for you and your family. You have to follow your own taste buds and your own instincts. Um, you know, you might like a little more, you know, a little more brightness in the dish, so you would give another squeeze of lemon or lime. Um, or a little less, you might like, you know, a certain soup a little, um, a little thicker. So you might take the lid off, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but overall, you say, um, well, two things struck me. Uh, one is that uh, Persians are concerned with digestion a lot. And the other <laughs> thing, their taste runs to sour. Could you expand on those two concepts? Sure, yes. We are obsessed with digestion. So um, Persian cooking, uh, there, it stems from this idea of creating balance, balance in the body. Um, and it comes from this concept of hot and cold foods, uh, but it's not in the literal sense of heat, like actual temperature or heat. It's the effect the food has on the body. So um, foods are categorized in these hot and cold um, columns. Uh, so let's say dates are known to be warming. So if you're a, a person of um, a cool temperament, <laughs> you might want to consume more dates. Or if you are someone who burns more hot, you might want to have some yogurt to balance, to create balance. And the same goes for how these recipes are put together. So there is an element of creating balance. So if you're using foods that... Um, are not as uh, ingredients that are not as digestible, then you see all these fresh herbs in the Yeah, now that one really okay. surprised me. I, nobody's ever mentioned to me that Persian, the Persian table will present you with a platter or a tray of, of fresh green herbs, bunches yes. of them. Tell us about that. So that, again, is in um, to aid the body to balance. You can think of that as our salad portion uh, at the table. So all those fresh herbs, they create um, a fresh bite. So you're having these somewhat heavier um, stews with the rice dishes, 
And when you're creating the perfect bite, you want to slip in a piece of fresh basil or mint or a crunchy radish. And um, it, it aids in digestion, first and foremost, but it also um, it helps in that bite. So it, it gives you something um, bright and fresh and crispy to have alongside the heavier meal. I, li- I like that concept a lot, but I've never come across it ever. You should try it, and you'll never I go know. back. I know. I mean, I think I love the idea. Um, I mean, I'm big on fresh herbs anyhow, but um, you have some interesting, intriguing ingredients that um, um, readers will familiarize themselves with from your glossary at the back. But there are some that I, I've been fascinated with. I've never been able to actually get a dried lime. I, I I was close. I was drying a lime and watching it and babying it, and and, and my cleaning woman threw it out. <laughs> yes, the Persian the dried limes um, are fantastic. Um, they have they impart such a distinct and uh, earthy note to our our stews and and some soups. Um, I highly recommend you get your hands on them. They're, you can now get them online. So if you don't have an Iranian or Middle Eastern market close to you, so, you can easily go online and order them and um, and cook with them. It's some, uh, you know, the dried limes. Um, we don't necessarily eat them once they've cooked, but it's the flavor that they add to the stew mm-hmm. um, or soup. So you. Um, you poke them with a fork or a sharp knife, and you just let them soften up in whatever it is you're cooking, and they'll release their juices. And it's quite a, a, a treat. Um, it's a lovely flavor. Yeah, we, we were actually introduced to them by a chef. A French in, chef. In, no, he's an French English chef. Oh, an English chef. In, in Cheltenham, England, in, the, in southwestern England near, near Bath. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was creating them himself. And I think he offered to give us one, but we couldn't figure out how to how get it back how, to the States. How we would get it home, because I think we were due to be in, in England for at least another week. <laughs> probably would have been okay. <laughs> it probably might have been okay, but it might have stunk up your suitcase. <laughs> oh, well, if you have them, if you seal them well, it should be okay. <laughs> well, what, ne- next time we get an offer, we'll, we'll take we'll take them up on it. <laughs> so, now, what are... Uh, You've mentioned soups and stews. One of the things that, um, by way of organiza- organization of your book, is that you focus on um, characteristic dishes. Like, I mean, what do you call the metze? But it's appetizers, right? But you, you do ash soups. Tell us about some of these categories. Um, yeah, so we don't, um, at the Persian table, we don't really have appetizers per se in that we don't eat per course. Everything comes to the table at the same time. And again, this is to aid in that, um, in that perf- creating the perfect bite. So you're going to have your yogurt and cucumber dish um, at the table with the rice and the stews and the fresh herbs and the pickles. So everything comes out family style at the same time. Um, But yes, so I I have organized the book in in the small bites in the, we call them mazis, 
a taste, like it's like medicine. Um, and you could serve many of those dishes as an appetizer, as a traditional appetizer, or they can appear at the, at the dinner table alongside all the other dishes. The osh dishes are, osh is a thicker soup. It's a heartier, thicker soup, um, typically with all the herbs. <laughs> that The herbs are the foundation of osh. So you'll have parsley, cilantro, green onions, dill, and they really create the flavor and foundation of your osh with all types of um, legumes, uh, all types of beans. Um, they, osh, most of the osh can be vegetarian. And then we get into the um, fragrant and flavorful stews, uh, which I think um, Iranians are known for. So, again, you had mentioned the sour in our dishes. Yes. And that is a, that is a, a flavor that um, Iranian cooking depends on. And it's more than sour. It's about brightening up the dish, what um, my mother also calls bringing a dish to life. Oh, yes. So that can be the use of um, just lemon juice can take care of it for you or um, pomegranate molasses oh, yes. or the dried, the dried limes that we just mentioned. Um, verjuice, which is the juice of um, unripened grapes. Um, uh, so, you know, those are the flavors what we call the chutney, which is um, the one the one or two ingredients that um, give a dish its characteristic. So whatever brings a dish to life. It's, a, it's an amazing concept, isn't it? Yeah, I, I laughed when it reminded me of, of Greek tables, too, where um, and Italian, actually, where during dinner they're already discussing what they're going to have for the next day. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, the discussion is food is on. We wake up thinking what we're going to have the next day. <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny. I, I lost a page I had marked, but there was a dish that for, for all the world looked like potato latke. Oh, it's, um, it's this one. No, it's not that page. It's, it, it's probably one of the cuckoos. Yeah, so it's, it could, oh, it's maybe the zucchini cuckoo, um, the, the summer squash cuckoo. Yes. Okay. Uh, we do have, um, so cuckoos are egg-based dishes. They're very similar. They're not similar, but you would you could think of them as um, Persian-style frittatas. What sets cuckoo apart is that it's less about the eggs and more about the filling. So the egg is really the binder there. Um, so, for for instance, again, for the, all the, the use of the fresh herbs, we have a, a cuckoo sabzi. Um, which is quite well known, and it's a dish that we enjoy. Um, we serve uh, at Persian New Year, Noruz, which is the first day of spring, and it's all these fresh herbs that I had mentioned, and you bind them with spices and um, a few eggs just to bind, uh-huh. and then you can either fry it on the stovetop or bake it in the oven. No, that's very much like what you do with the Jewish potato latke. You actually, yes, exactly. You actually, you actually use the a, a raw egg as a binder, mm-hmm. but you're creating essentially a potato cake. And in the case exactly. of, in the case of, of latke, it's not on there, it's ground raw potato. Now, you, you, your cuckoos, maybe the potatoes it's are cooked. It's grated, right? Uh, 
So the um, the potato uh, cuckoo that I have, um, yes, the potato is cooked and then mashed. So you can do it either in, um, you know, you can do it by hand with a fork, you know, however you like to mash your potatoes. Okay. So you can use a ricer, you know, that always creates a nice um, texture to the potato cuckoo. Um, but yes, you cook the potato first and then bind it with turmeric and with eggs, and then you can add turmeric and maybe even a little saffron, um, salt and pepper, and then you fry them up. It looks, okay. like, looks, like, looks kind of like the kind of thing that would get stolen by a child going by and, <laughs> and passing, exactly. the, passing the pen and, and helping exactly themselves. What, <laughs> that's exactly what happens. It makes for a great after-school snack. There are other people who do that, including wives. You know, the other thing I found curious was that your breads are so similar to Indian breads, and you're even called like a nan. Well, um, nan just means bread. (laughs) But in in what? I mean, that's what they're called in in, uh, India, too. In India, too, though, nan just simply means bread. It's not, I think it's in the West here we've become uh, accustomed to calling a certain type of flatbread non. Yes. But but non just means bread. So it could be a baguette, <laughs> it could be sliced bread. Then you can specify what type of non. So we have non abarbari, which is the oblong shaped bread. Yes, I'm looking um, at it now, yeah. Yes, yeah. And it, it looks like focaccia, actually. <laughs> It is. Uh, the dough is very similar to pizza dough. It's a wet dough, um, and it, but it is a flatbread, um, and it's known for its grooved indentations, like a focaccia, which you are correct. Um, but it's not as um, when it's baked. It's it's more flat. It's it's not as um, as doughy as a focaccia might be. Now, everything about this. The dishes in this book is so amazingly colorful. Oh, it, it's a colorful culture and, and it's, colorful cuisine. It's, it's red and orange and yellow and green. Well, yes, it is. It's very. It's a vibrant cuisine, and I'm so happy um, that I got to partner with my wonderful photographer Eric Wolfinger, and he really captured the vibrancy and spirit of, of our food and our culture. Yes, I mean, all you have to do is look at some of the uh, Persian miniature paintings, you know, to, to get a sense of that that joy in, in color and, and richness. And, and it, oh, I'm so happy to hear you say that, because no, that, that is what we try to achieve. So, no, What you didn't include was a strategy to make sure you got your share of the rice that was at the bottom of the pot. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's always <laughs> that's always the problem at the table is all the hands reach in. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, well, this is this is a fine contribution to a world glossary of of foods and their associated populations. So, thank you so much for putting this together. And listeners, you're going to have a whole lot of new adventures if you care to get a copy of the book. And it's called The Bottom of the Pot. Bottom of the pot. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and we should mention that you also have a, an online blog called Bottom of the Pot. Yes, yes. 
and you can find all sorts of information about the book and, um, you know, various recipes as well. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And for our last segment, we turn to a common inhabitant of pots. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Beans. <laughs> and, and, and we made a big pot just to prove it. We made a big we pot. We did. We did indeed. Um, Steve Sanders. Um, Flagello beans. Flagello, yeah. And, uh, and we, we, we didn't we didn't entirely follow the recipe, but the beans were good on their own anyway. <laughs> beans are good on their own. So uh, anyhow, it's the Rancho Gordo beans. But the the guests that we're going to be interviewing the person who wrote the book, which is George Ann Brennan, who you probably encountered on our show before, um, and her. Yeah, I didn't know this until we, we ventured into this, that beans are, they have a whole cuisine in France of beans, more more than just cassoulet. And, that, and that's what this book is all about. Georgianne Brennan, you're becoming a regular on, on the menu. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to be back. Yes. So um, we've talked to you before. You, you spent half the, your time in uh, Provence. And uh, you've written a couple books on that as well. Um, you're an expert in French cuisine, but now you're also uh, apparently an expert on beans. And I never even thought. I was like um, uh, Steve about, I, I didn't, except for cassoulet, I never associated beans with uh, France. Well, I think that's uh, true of, of most people, and that's why... Steve Sando at, at Rancho Gordo was intrigued by the idea that there's more French cookery with beans than cassoulet. Yes, and, and, and around. Of the book. And, and you, there are all these types of beans. Um, well, Steve, by the way, is one of our most favorite people. He's oh, just, good. Uh, yeah, I love him. And... Uh, and I love his beans. And any, any excuse to talk to him, so I'll send us some more beans. <laughs> <laughs> so, although I found that, um, who is it that handles it? William Sonoma handles his beans. Do they? Do they? Okay. They were sending me beans, you, too. <laughs> you probably you probably get a few beans from Steve, too, huh? Do you? Yeah. Yes? Yeah. Yes. Well, now, I mean, one of the things, of course, I always associate with Steve's concept and his mission of having beans be um, a, a Native American food. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's funny putting it in a time frame. I didn't realize that beans arrived in the old world so late. Yeah. They, um, I think really with, with France in, in particular, they started really being... Um, used on a large basis in the 1700s and then the early 1800s, and then they began growing them all over in various parts of France, so then certain beans became associated with that particular region. Well, now you say, you say in your book that, in fact, it was Catherine, Catherine de' Medici, who was the queen of France, who, who first had them introduced into, 
into France, and I guess it would have been would have been Italian. Would have been the same time that she invented ice cream as well. <laughs> she was quite the woman, wasn't she? She, she, she was. Yeah. She was quite the feeder. <laughs> I bet she was big and fat. <laughs> oh well, she must have lived the, the high life for sure. Yeah. Um, she was yes, apparently she, she was she was very lonely. She had that palace in the park, and I think she was very lonely. Oh. Yeah, I, I read a big book on her, didn't I? Yeah, you did. Yes. I did biography of her. She was very oh. lonely. Um, well, so you have now a, a section when you're working into this book, your French bean profiles. And as I told you, I have a leg of lamb, and I'm going to use your recipe for rub, uh, beans and lamb. And, yeah. and which beans? I have all these beans. Which ones should I use? It's the flagellate ones. Flagellate. Definitely with the lamb. I would, if you have them, I would use the flagellate. The yes. lamb and flagellate is like you know Sunday lunch special in all over France, and for festive meals, it's just flagellate and lamb go together like. I don't know. Oh sure, I think we have. I think we have two packages. We have two. Oh, we have two yeah. one-pound packages. We have the the um, Christmas French bean gift pack. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. So uh, I don't know if that's available at other times. Um, check I, the Rancho Gordo um, website website to see. Yeah, they have the various uh, gift packs throughout the year, so there's always something that uh-huh. might change, you know, from from season to season. But the, the flageolet beans are the lovely um, pale green color, and the beans that ran the variety that Steve carries are excellent. The quality is excellent. And sometimes you'll find flageolet beans when some are kind of white and some are pale green and some are small and some are medium, and his are just beautifully uh, sized and regular in color and cooking them with the lamb and with anything, but they they hold their shape. And sometimes, you know, beans, you overcook and they sort of go mushy. Oh, that awful, yeah. I, I had that, that. With the, And yeah. these flageolets hold their shape beautifully, and one of the best things is that when you uh, carve the lamb and then let some of the juices of the wonderful lamb mingle oh, with sure, the yes. beans, it is wonderful. Oh, the, ones, the ones we had came from Sicily. Oh, nice. They were, gi- they were giant beans. No, they were not flagellar. They were giant, some kind of giant beans. Oh, you're beans. talking about the ones that went and to pits. They, and they, they, the, the instructions said you had to peel them. Ah. <laughs> so we peeled them. And, of course, wh- when you cook them beyond being peeled, they all collapse. Oh, well, did <laughs> it taste good? They, 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 they tasted fine. It looked, looked terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, sometimes we, got- we have to go with taste, not presentation. Yeah, that's right. it. Well, um, so but you have um, different classifications of bees that I never heard of, like Tarbay. Yes, the tar- Tarbay is the uh, original cassoulet bean, uh-huh. uh, and it's AOC, and it's grown in a particular area. Under with the AOCs, as you know, there's not just the the variety of whatever it is, but they have to be uh, cultivated in a certain way, harvested in a certain way and packaged in a certain way in order to have that uh, denomination. But it is, the tarbay is a, uh, a, a white medium-sized bean, um, and the seed, it's there, they, that bean can be grown anywhere. Oh, really? Uh, that a bean, but they can't be called tarbay. 
So uh, Rancho Gordo's bean is the same type, but it is produced elsewhere, which is why he calls it the cassoulet bean. Okay, that's okay. what they call it now in that, America. The, the main area of production is somewhere near Carcassonne? Exactly. Well, we stayed. We stayed in Carcassonne. If you remember, we, yeah, stayed, we, did. we stayed in a hotel in the walls of Carcassonne. Oh, I did too. It was fun, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was super, Great. yeah. So, and, and what else? There are all these different uh, um, descriptions you outline and photographs, which are very helpful too. And if, if you want to learn about this bean culture, um, just open the book, and there it is. Um, you you also have instructions for dealing with beans, and that varies too, doesn't it? Yes. Now, you said, surprisingly, that it's not necessary to soak the beans. I thought it was absolutely essential. Well, I think, you know, and this, it, again, the uh, with the Rancho Gordo beans in particular, they are fresh. They are new crop. They're freshly harvested. They're top quality. In the past, or depending on where the beans are coming from, they may be two or three years old. They may have been harvested kind of late in their prime, and they will take longer to cook. And I think that is where that long-time notion of, as you say, essential to soak beans comes from having not really knowing quite what to do, and so soaking makes it a sure thing. And, you know, as Steve says, Sometimes he'll soak for a couple of hours. Sometimes he won't soak. Uh, I think it's pretty individual. Uh, we one of the things we had in in our conversation with him, which is probably a year or so ago, was whether or not you kept the water, the soaking oh, the water. water. Right? Did you keep the soaking water, or did you th- throw it out and and start with fresh water? And I think he finished up saying pretty much what we just said. It's a matter of your personal preference. Yeah, your, so. your personal taste. And I just came across something recently uh, about an Italian dish, and it said absolutely keep the soaking water. Uh-huh. So uh, does it matter? I don't know. Well, you know, uh, we have the stash of, of, uh, of dried seaweed from Maine, mm. which is a good thing to, to have around. Uh, and the, all of the recipes that comes with the cookbook too, all of the recipes say stay, save the soaking water. You, uh-huh. you have to re, reconstitute well, it all, but well, it's it kind says of, it's kind of save like, it. It's kind of like the save some of the pasta water though when uh-huh. you're cooking your pasta. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think the the, con- the concept is the same, and I, I think it's just another step in there to to make you feel like you're being re- super sophisticated. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, the same, you know, is true with, you, you know, you're soaking uh, uh, porcini or other uh, wild mushrooms, and you always, you know, save the soaking water, strain it, of course, because little bits and pieces uh, might get soaked out. But the water, and like with the seaweed, too, if there is a flavor in there. It takes some of that flavor. You know, another thing you mentioned that I find absolutely essential, and I laugh about it because... I mean, I, I, you said always sift through dried beans to, to see if there are any little stones or pebbles in there. And I'm telling you, I don't know how many uh, how many times I've cooked black beans, you know, and, and and sure enough, there's like one or two in every single oh. batch. Oh, okay. Right. And I, I wondered if they actually hired somebody to put. The, <laughs> Well, I think that 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 happens when the the beans are uh, harvested in the field. Of course, you get assorted things with it, and then they go through the cleaning process, 
with machines, and um, sometimes the machines can't tell a bean from a little pebble or something. Uh, oh, 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 that's I why. Think, I think the other, the other thing goes like this. I think stones are heavier than beans. <laughs> One would say yes, and so you should get most of them. So, so, you, should, so you should get... You're likely to get more stones. It's just too tempting for <laughs> the seller. So, well, well, you you include also chickpeas in here and uh, lentils. And I'm very fond of both, yeah. um, but they're not really, uh, strictly speaking, beans. No, they're not. And Steve and I went round and round about that and whether or not to include them. And we decided, with the acknowledgement that they are not beans, uh, that they are treated in very much the same way they are. in cooking, and that uh, particular both the chickpeas have been grown in France for thousands of years. And yeah, I was surprised by that. You yeah, gave a number that startled me: seven thousand years. It's amazing. Uh, so they have been around for a very long time, and they uh, in Pro- in Provence which is, as you know, essentially a poor country in terms of its soil and, and what it can, can grow, particularly the, the rockier areas, chickpeas were an essential crop that helped people get through the year. Yeah, they're very and nutritious. They're more exotic now. And then with the North African influence from the time of uh, the uh, colonies in France, the chickpeas so popular in North Africa, and those dishes have now become a part of, of French culture as well. And then, of course, the lentils are practically, the, the green lentils from Lupuy are practically synonymous with, with France. Yes. So I have lentils every them. morning, compliments of my husband. Oh, you do? How nice. He makes lentils with quinoa, and I use it as the basis for my breakfast bowls, which essentially is leftovers from the day before. So this yeah. Protein and so, so, so forth. There's no... There's no uh, cereal like that available. There's a problem. So I have, <laughs> I, have to, I have to be on the ball. You have to. That's right. I, I hate <laughs> breakfast food, so I love these breakfast bowls. Uh, you know, our but, but you, chickpeas, we saw them growing. Like, Aren't they curious how they you grow? Didn't like, you didn't like chia seeds. No, I don't like chia seeds. I don't <laughs> like them. They're oily or greasy uh-huh. or something. I don't a little like slippery. Them. Yeah, I don't <laughs> like them. But, you know, they, um, our market got... Fresh chickpeas, and I got so excited because I'd seen them growing in Italy. Uh huh. And you know they grow like two to a pod. Yes, yeah, that's right. You've you seen them. Uh huh. Have you tried cooking them from scratch? It's such a pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to. You, you know, I have. There's um, uh, around where I live. It's, there's a lot of uh, ethnic uh, diversity, and there's a produce stand that I go to that's open from June to December, and you get all kinds of things there. And I saw these big bundles of vining things with little, you know, what they were chickpeas, but they were selling them by the, by the, by the bundle, you know, as big a <laughs> bundle as you could get your arms around. And of course, somebody, most of it gets tossed. I said, what are you doing? I stopped somebody who had them, and I said, what are you going to do with these? And she explained how they cook them down, and it's like a green, and then you take the little peas out. And I thought, whew, that is a lot of work. So it is. <laughs> I skipped that. Well, we, we found um, that we can buy them flash frozen. Ah. At, at Whole Foods. At Whole Foods. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so they're, they're not canned. No, mm-hmm. and, they're, and they're expensive. Yeah. But, but it's, it's a hell of a lot less trouble than 
than trying to peel the, the whatever they call that fibrous thing. Yeah. Uh, whatever pod. Yeah. Well, um, I I told Steve the story once when we were talking about beans. Is I read that um, you know the the blue zones people. Yeah. yeah anyhow, um, I read one interview with somebody doing Blue Zones research, and he interviewed um, someone from Sardinia, and he asked him the reason for his longevity, and the guy replied, beans. Ah. <laughs> it, it was his only word in the English language. <laughs> it was, <laughs> so I, I was hoping that Steve would add that to his advertising materials. I thought it was pretty right. cool. Right, yeah. Well, it's, it's hard to read anything about beans these days that, you know, that doesn't proclaim all their virtues and how much potassium and how much we should eat. And oh, black right. beans have the most. I was amazing the attention, and I think rightly so. They are one delicious and versatile, and um, good for us. And, and if you want to understand the versatility, you got to get this book. Oh. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's very simply called French Fresh Beans: Beans, Exploring the Bean. French beans, not fresh beans. French beans, exploring the bean cuisine of France. And, uh, Georgie, you have all the classics in here. So people who want to make cassoulet can do it. You even have a, um, a well, I, my favorite section is the, your appetizer thing. Mm. I mean, this white bean in anchovy dip looks fabulous. That is so good and so easy. Uh-huh. And, you know, when I was doing, again, you know, you think, well, you, you you have beans and you have some left over. So why not, you know, do something a little bit different with them? Um, which is one of the things that Steve really uh, touts is, you know, don't cook a handful, cook the whole bag, and then, you know, do some other things, whether it's turning it into a salad or, you know, smashing them up and creaming them into a, a spread for a toast. So it makes a lot of sense. Well, I think so, and I think that the recipes in this book look positively delicious. Um, Thank you. And I, I thought it was interesting that you added a salade Mexican. Is I, I, it's so um, omnipresent in France, I couldn't resist, because you see it on, on menus, you can buy canned ingredients for salade Mexican. Really? Yeah. And I just, you know, it's in the magazines. There's salad Mexican, so I thought, why not? But the it's with canned corn, which is part of yeah. <laughs> the French version. Which you know, I would I would always use fresh corn, pretty much. I don't know. I could use frozen or canned. Frozen <laughs> you never you never can tell. Huh? No, but yeah. So that was fun. But I think part of the idea of the book was to approach beans both historically and. Um, Classically, but also the way they're used in contemporary French cooking. Yes, you mentioned that, and I think that's a really good move. You, you were talking about authentic versus um, contemporary. Mm-hmm. Well, that's you know that's what makes sense to me, and I think that's how you know a lot of us think about food in general. Sometimes we just want to have that classic, authentic, old school, old fashioned, you know, full blown whatever it is, and then. You know, other times we just want to use what's, fre- what's fresh and in season and, you know, come up with something that tastes good. Well, you have wonderful recipes in this book, and I can't wait to work my way through it. Thank you. 
So um, good luck with your, are you doing a, a tour or not? No, this, uh, this was just a project for Rancho Gordo. Uh-huh. And so the, well, the book is only available through Rancho Gordo right now. Yeah, I, I see his, his own publishing house. Yeah, yeah. He just got set up with um, traditional publishing because he felt they, you know, that the publisher didn't really do enough. Publishers do enough to, you know, to promote and back the book, and yet they take most of the money. And he said, what the Yeah, heck? this is true. <laughs> and <laughs> so if I they don't do it, Amazon does it. Uh-huh, Exactly. And one of the women working uh, uh, for Steve has experience in the book publishing business as a um, designer and editor and so forth. So she helps do a lot of that, and then, you know, then you hire your team, and there you go. Well, I mean, I think it's a move in the right direction because uh, they just aren't delivering these publishers. No, and I, it's, yeah, it's. That's a whole other um, subject. But Steve, yeah. you know, he loves books, and he loves having books and buying them and writing them. And so this this was a fun project to do with him, and I imagine he's going to continue to do more. Well, um, keep us posted. All right. <laughs> okay, Georgine. Thank nice you for coming you. and talking to us again. All righty. Take care. Um, Enjoy that lamp. Oh, yeah. boy. I wish you could come for dinner. So there is a pot <laughs> yeah, no, in your future. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, what, and what, whether it's an instant pot or just a great big pot that you put on the stove. Either way, one pot meals are a fabulous introduction into your cooking, what do you call it? Your cooking armory. Repertoire. Repertoire. Repertoire, there we go. Especially for comfort foods, cold weather foods, and there we have it. And we'll repertoire with you again, same time, same place next week. So until then. Bye-bye.